This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Homeschooling is a hot topic these days. Many parents are forced to homeschool their children this year, whether they want to or not. Some are deciding that teaching their children themselves is much better than having them stare at a screen, getting sore eyes, and utterly bored. Some people think that the pandemic will forever change public opinion about where, when, and how children should be educated. To find out more about what's going on in the homeschooling world and to look at some of the latest research on this topic, Daniel Hamlin, an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma, and I decided to co-host a conference on homeschooling in the post-pandemic era. The conference was designed for the pandemic era. We held one session every Thursday for seven weeks, giving us seven sessions in all, but only one hour a week. So people didn't have to stare at that Zoom screen endlessly uh, in the course of one or two days. The conversation was taped and you can listen to any one or all sessions by going to the Harvard University website that is uh, the program on education policy and governance. But Daniel and I thought it would be fun for you, our listeners, to hear our thoughts about the conference just after it had ended last Thursday. And Daniel is here with me today on the Education Exchange to talk about it. So thanks, Dan, for joining me. You're welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, Daniel, um, what was the biggest surprise for you coming out of the uh, out of all these sessions? What did you learn that sort of, oh, okay, that's that's news. I know you're a homeschool researcher, and so you probably knew everything anyhow. But did anything surprise you? When I started looking at homeschooling about three years ago, I would say there were a number of things that immediately surprised me, and at least at this conference, I think what's maybe surprised me maybe more than anything was the level of interest, passion, and organization of the homeschoolers themselves. So we had uh, over 2,000 people register for the conference. I think the vast majority of, that, of those were, were parents who homeschooled. And uh, the amount of engagement, uh, the level of participation during the sessions, I, I'm not sure. So, Paul, do you know of any other uh, sectors of education or any other parent groups where you could draw in over 2,000 some odd parents for a research conference? Uh, yeah, it was advertised as a research conference, but we sort of had to adapt in the middle and, and, um, and adjust to the fact that we were talking to parents and they were talking back to us. The chat function would go all day long. And then the Q&As, the questions came in so fast, we were pretty lucky that we decided we were going to ask the questions based on what we were getting because those questions were pouring in so fast that uh, I, I was relying on you to, to, to pick out the best ones. Well, I, I think it worked out. And, and fortunately, our presenters also, I think, adapted their presentations a little bit to, to be able to speak to a, to a broader audience. And so I, I think that part of it worked out. But Again, I, I was, um, that I think surprised me. I think we had between some of our organizers and myself and you, we, we probably had hundreds of, of emails from parents uh, who homeschool, who reflected on the conference, gave us both criticisms and compliments. Uh, we had many, many volunteers. So parents who wanted to uh, be on our parent panel or participate in some way. So the energy around this, I, I found to be quite interesting. And if you think about it, I think there's a lot of 
we have a lot of districts, a lot of schools around the country, and they're, they're looking for this kind of energy in the parent community. And so uh, oftentimes you hear about uh, district leaders or principals wanting more from the parent community. And here, uh, I think the level of energy is, is something uh, that was kind of impressive. Yeah, no, that's good. Now, my biggest surprise was somewhat different. Uh, although I recognize the one that you pointed out is, is truly surprising and, and uh, revealing. But the, we had, who was it on our panel who's an expert on sexual abuse in education? That'd be Professor Cheryl Shakespeare. Yes, well, Cheryl is a very impressive uh, presenter. And I understand that she gets involved as a expert witness in, in lawsuits. And, and so I could see why she was such a good expert witness because she had a lot of facts at her fingertips. And she pointed out that the American Association of University Women back in the 1990s uh, administered a survey which found that 13% of the students uh, claimed that some kind of sexual abuse had been endured by them at school from an adult, not necessarily a teacher, but from an adult at the school, 13%. Now, it wasn't necessarily physical. It was about evenly divided between verbal and physical. You know, verbal abuse can be through all kinds of suggestive language. But then, and the physical abuse could be misinterpreted by kids, touching by an adult, a child by an adult may be interpreted different ways by a, a child or a teenager than what was intended by the adult. But nonetheless, that's a, that's a, it's an extraordinarily high number. And what was really surprising to me was that nobody had followed up on this. I'm not saying this is the best survey in the world. It just, it's probably not a good survey. In many ways, the questions probably weren't um, clear enough, but it certainly was generating a finding that you would think that the US government would be following up on because they do surveys of schools all the time, but there's never been a follow-up on this. And I just thought, well, here is a topic, given the language and the conversations that are going on about the police department and about many university professors and all over the place that they're not even collecting any information about what's going on in our public schools. I don't know if you found that as surprising as I did. I, I did. I found it surprising. I, I, was, I was thinking about it, I guess, more in terms of our broader conversation about homeschooling and, and child and, and sexual abuse and homeschooling environments. And if we, if we don't if we don't have a good understanding even of what's happening in, in brick and mortars, and that that's sort of the model in this case that we're using to justify uh, regulation, potential regulation of homeschool households, well, maybe as a first step, we have to at least know what's happening in, in schools first if we're using that as as sort of the comparative. And I'm I'm not even sure it's a good comparative. I don't, what are your thoughts on that, Paul? Well, you know, the hottest topic uh, all seven sessions was regulation of, of homeschooling by the government. So we had this Harvard professor, Elizabeth Bartlett, who, who really is quite a uh, well-informed uh, legal analyst, uh, make the claim that uh, child abuse by homeschoolers is a serious issue out there and we needed tighter regulation. And in some way, that article of hers, which appeared in Harvard Magazine, set off a conversation that we got involved in. We, got it, we heard about it from people and 
And we said, well, we should really have a conference on this and have this really discussed. So we had her and she was nice enough to appear on the opening session. And then we had somebody from the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund. Uh, what was his name, uh, Daniel? Uh, we had Mike Donnelly from the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund. So Mike Donnelly uh, was um, there and he is a very capable person. I can see why the Homeschool Legal Defense Fund is such a powerful force because he is certainly a strong leader. And the two of them really had quite an exchange. Uh, uh, what emerged out of that exchange, do you think? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I think it was, I mean, it was a nice treat to get both of them um, in the room, so to speak, virtually, because they have such different views on, on this topic. And of course, I'll just quickly mention, we, we also had Eric uh, Warren, uh, who, who does research on uh, hybrid homeschooling, and then also James Dwyer, uh, who was involved in this debate. He's a professor at William and Mary, and also a, an analyst, and I think someone who would like to see greater regulation of homeschooling. So we had the four of them in this in this conversation, uh, but I, I think that the the exchanges were were quite, I guess you could say, quite enlightening. I think one thing that really came to the fore here with respect to regulation, at least this is my takeaway, and I I'd be curious to see what you think about this, Paul. But the way my my main takeaway is those who are arguing for regulation of homeschooling environments are. Are, are saying that the reason why we need to regulate homeschooling is to be able to identify people who actually are not homeschooling. So that, that, that seemed to be the main, my main takeaway is that the main, the main call for regulation is to find those who, who actually are not homeschooling. So I found that to be kind of interesting. I, what are your thoughts, Paul? Well, you know, that brings up the very last session that we had where we had a woman uh, from Massachusetts. Oh, uh, Karen Damatos, the parent from, she was from Massachusetts. Yes. Yes. And she's, she's an unschooler. She said, I tried to homeschool my children and it just didn't work. I just had to let them live their lives. And so her, her definition of homeschooling is let children live their own lives. And now they are adults and they are uh, finding jobs out there. One's uh, working as an auto repair person and uh, is thinking about starting his own business and, uh, you know, growing up and, and she was just making the case that not everybody is uh, designed to go sit in a classroom and, and uh, spend six hours a day under the direction of a teacher. And, and you just gotta let some kids, she says, I never intended this. This is something that just emerged naturally as, as part of our family situation. So I found that a very compelling response to this idea that we've gotta make sure that everybody is uh, actually doing some instruction. Well, maybe some kids don't, don't, function very well under some kind of direct instruction, whether it's from the parents or, or from, from somebody else. So I, but the other point that came out there was how about physical abuse of the child that nobody is detecting because the child is being homeschooled and why shouldn't we have regulation of that? And so what did the Legal Defense Fund, uh, Mr. Donnelly, what did he have to say when that issue was raised. I think his point was that there, 
you already have regulations in place that would help to identify children who are being physically abused. I, I think that was his his main point is that you do have those structures in place. And I I I, I mean I, I don't know to what extent that might be true, but I but I do think that uh, I, it's not clear to me that if you if you did have some type of regulation in place that would specifically target homeschoolers, that that would actually do the job that those who are arguing for regulation would want it to do. So there's a couple of assumptions here. And I, I think one of them is, is that there's a, a subpopulation, let's say, of well-trained experts out there who are going to be uh, ready and able to regulate homeschooling in this way. I think there, if you look at uh, just kind of the field of social work in general, there's right now a shortage of social workers and huge issues with training and retention and finding people who are able to uh, go out into, into homes and do what's really a really hard job. And oftentimes uh, you'll hear from those who have been in this field for quite a time, you, you, quite a long time, you'll have uh, maybe a 22 year old or a 23 year old person who's just graduated from a social work program. I'm sure they're, they're wonderful, but they're, they're suddenly in the field and uh, dealing with really complex cases, and so it, it, I, th I think it's a struggle. It's a it's a struggle, just kind of generally speaking. When 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 we've been able, when the system's been able to identify severe cases of child abuse and sexual abuse, and and to kind of ramp up this level of regulation and expect everything to go smoothly, I think is something that would need to be thought through to a much greater extent. Well, you know, there's a sense in which whatever anybody says, it's certain to be true somewhere. And, and it, you know, there's so much variety out there. The states vary so dramatically in their regulation of uh, the homeschooling enterprise. Some states you, you uh, have to, you know, submit a curriculum that you're teaching and they're going to be testing you on a periodic basis. And other states, uh, you don't even have to notify your local school board that you're homeschooling. Uh, so, you know, when people make comments about homeschooling and the regulation thereof, it's such a vast, uh, uh, a wild world out there that there's there's no really simple way in which you can summarize it. Well, that I, I think that's just it. So I think this, I think we were able to kind of push the conversation forward a little bit through our conference series, but. I do think you're right. So you've got different buckets of regulation that people are talking about. So one might be a, a doctor's visit, whereas other uh, another type of regulation might be, and, and some countries do this, where they require homeschooling parents to demonstrate their pedagogical approach and their instructional materials. And you mentioned, of course, with our unschooling parent, I don't know, I don't know where that kind of regulation leaves the unschoolers. Um, and then, of course, just basic notification. So I think there are 11 states right now that don't even require uh, homeschoolers to notify the state or the local district that they're homeschooling. So at least for that one, I think the researcher in me would say it wouldn't be a bad idea to at least have some kind of notification or record that the parent is homeschooling. Uh, and I think that would be helpful uh, in, a, in, a, in a number of ways. I think not least of which we would just know uh, precisely how many people are actually homeschooling. I, I don't actually think we have 
a very precise estimate of how many people are, are really homeschooling. And one of the reasons is uh, we just don't have good records. Well, that's another reason why we uh, held this conference is the, just, just uh, a few weeks before we began, the U.S. Census Bureau came out with a startling figure that said 11% of all students in the United States were being homeschooled. Well, before that, we were figuring it's about 3%. 2019, the U.S. Department of Education uh, put out data saying that 3% of the population is being homeschooled, which is a pretty big number. It's double what it was maybe 20 years ago, but still 3%, so long ways away from 11%. And now the U.S. Census Bureau, which has more prestige out there than the Department of Education, whether it's deserved or not, I don't know, but it is the U.S. Census Bureau, comes out with 11%. Do you believe that number? <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I, I don't. I, do, do, you, do you believe that number? I mean, my takeaway from the panelists was that, and this is across the sessions that we had, was that that number is overstated for uh, lots of reasons. So I, I think one of the main ones, and I, and I believe our representative from the U U.S. Department of Education mentioned this, was just how people were identifying uh, themselves. So, for example, you had people saying that they were homeschooling during the pandemic, but then also uh, marking that their kids were attending public and private schools. So I, I think there's all kinds of issues there. I think the conflation with full-time virtual learning is, is, an, is an issue. So you have groups of people out there that consider a student who's attending a full-time virtual school as a, as a homeschooler. I, I, from a research standpoint, I would not classify that student as a homeschooler. But what, what do you think about that number, Paul? What were, what were your thoughts? Do you think we've skyrocketed to 11%? Well, you know, the Education Next surveys in the past have gotten the 3% number that is very similar to the uh, percentage that the U.S. Department of Education has, has obtained in prior surveys. So, so we have been basically uh, getting the same percentage that they have been getting in the past, but ours jumped this year to 6%. Uh, so I don't know if that means that, you know, homeschooling increased, doubled, during the pandemic and if that's real homeschooling or if that's still this digital learning thing, I think we're only gonna know this fall when uh, schools are pretty much back open in person across the country. The, the next set of data we get uh, on uh, percent homeschooling is gonna be a very interesting number because only then are we gonna know whether or not there's been a genuine increase in the homeschooling population. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And I think that's pretty much what all of our panelists said. I, I, I think, and, and I would say also a number of them added that they think that number will, that 11% number will tick back down, but that you'll see a little bit of an increase from the 3% the threshold that we started at. So we'll see if yeah. that happens. You know, the other topic that we must cover is this whole thing about whether uh, homeschoolers are isolated. And I know you've done research on that. Uh, and we had a lot of interesting uh, findings presented. How would you summarize what we learned about the degree to which homeschoolers are isolated from friendships with others and are, are really being closeted in their, in their homes? Yeah, the, the homeschoolers love this question. 
<laughs> I, I think the, the social question is what really, um, I, I think they feel like the rest of the non-homeschooling population really doesn't understand them on this particular question. And I, I would say I would probably fall into that category. So when I first started looking into uh, homeschooling research a few years back, my uh, preconception would have been surely socialization is an issue. Surely they're more socially isolated. Surely there are problems with making friends. But um, if you look at the literature, and it is a descriptive literature, so we have to be mindful of that, it, it doesn't suggest any of this. And then in some of my own research on this, uh, looking at both quantitative and qualitative data sources, uh, it seems to be the case that their socialization uh, happens in maybe, I, I think, conventional ways. So yes, they're, they're active in their communities and participating in local sports teams and various uh, community events. But then they also do a range of maybe unconventional activities. So they might be apprenticing in the afternoons, for example, after school. And so they're socializing in, in lots of different ways. And that would, I would also add to that that I think their networks, I think the evidence suggests that their networks are a little bit smaller, maybe than your typical public schooler. But uh, what they tend to emphasize, or what seems to be the case, is that their networks tend to be a little bit denser, and, uh, and, and they would also argue maybe of higher quality. So I, I think um, on the social question, I think there's just not a lot of evidence that they're a socially isolated group. I think this, this um, all the evidence that we have, just I, I'm not seeing it. Um, so that that's how I would sum that up. So how about the um, how about the academic side? Uh, are they learning anything at home, or are parents really? I know there's great variation. There are some parents who must be doing a spectacular job. I remember once two professors who were uh, Native Americans who were teaching their children a language that was going out of existence because they came from a small tribe and they wanted to homeschool their children so that that language didn't disappear. And they were obviously giving their children an incredible education. But, um, but you know, there are many others who don't have that background, that capacity. And so, um, you know, on average, do you think that the homeschooling population is getting a reasonably decent education that could prepare them for going to college and uh, or, or having a, a, a solid career? So we had, yeah, so we, we had professors, uh, we had Christian Wilkins and Jennifer Jolly and Robert Kunzman present on this. And what they said was, if you look at the literature on this, what it says is that we don't see any evidence that it's either helpful or harmful. And the main claim was that the, the source of evidence that we have are, are entirely descriptive. So we just, we just sort of don't know. And then they added to that that part of the reason why we don't know is, is not just the, the, the methods that are used to generate uh, claims about homeschoolers maybe later in life, but, but also just how different homeschoolers are. And, and their reasons for homeschooling. So you might have someone who homeschools because they have a child who has uh, very, uh, uh, let's say, severe special needs. 
And so the outcomes for that child are going to be quite different from another homeschooling family that homeschools a child because that child is gifted and just needs a lot more maybe than what uh, the local school can offer. And so the parent is trying to provide that. And so uh, those are those are some of the challenges I think that were identified. And, and so the, the claim was neither helpful nor, har nor harmful. Now, I think that's interesting because when we're talking about homeschooling and a parent's decision to homeschooling, it's not the same as doing research on some kind of intervention or some kind of policy that's meant to close the achievement gap. And I, I think the way that is better to kind of maybe assess or think about homeschooling is, is to kind of say, is it, is it actually harmful? Is there evidence that it's harmful? And if it's not harmful, then you've got to really think about um, your, your critique. So what are your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, I found it interesting that the Germans, you know, don't allow homeschooling and that the French have such a tight regulated system that actually the US, the United States is really quite permissive as compared to other industrialized countries. But I really think some of these other countries have to really look at themselves. We had this woman who was a, a soprano uh, and her husband was in music and they were traveling all over the world to pursue their careers and they wanted their children with them. And the Germans said, no, you have to leave your children behind. I mean, it was, it's absurd, some of the regulations that are, are in place in some countries around the world. So I guess I have to add that to the surprise thing that really the United States really looks very permissive compared to other countries. I think there's no question about that. And, and I think we did of course have an international panel. And I, I think one of my takeaways from that panel is not only within the US are, are things so uh, diverse within the homeschooling population, but if you look out internationally, it's just really different across countries. So I think we had the Israeli panelists and they, they said that really the main, the main rationale for, for homeschooling in Israel is sort of an unschooling, unstructured approach. And that families who are maybe more conservative religiously are much less likely to do homeschooling. And so, of course, that's, that's a little bit different than what you find here in the U.S. So, uh, okay, I'm going to end with this question, Daniel, because I know you want to talk about it. What do you think needs to be researched? What did you learn from this conference that we don't know that we could get data on and could know something about? Well, okay, so I, I think... We need, I think one of the main limitations of the research that we have on homeschooling is that we don't properly disaggregate homeschoolers. And I think that's a really good starting point is to have some kind of typology of, of homeschooling. You really have, so if you were doing a, a study of schools uh, and looking at something simple like academic achievement, well, you'd wanna know, are they a charter school? Are they a private school? Are they a district-run public school? And you would disaggregate and look at outcomes differentially. Well, I, I think there's something similar probably going on within homeschooling. And I don't know if we've done a good job of, of fleshing that out and deriving a, a useful typology so that we could properly study homeschoolers. Now, with that said, I think that would be helpful. I think longitudinal data would be helpful. I think we're gonna continue to struggle with deriving, making any kinds of causal claims 
And I also think we're going to we're going to continue to struggle to even identify homeschoolers. So a number of them, Paul, and you you probably saw this in the chat, said uh, over and over again, we want to be left alone. We don't want to be studied, um, and we don't need academics to tell us you know, how how things should be. We we we're perfectly fine, kind of doing things on our own. We, we don't want to be under the microscope. So I think we're going to struggle to try to identify homeschoolers. Well, of course, my response to that is, is that you're going to be studied one way or another. And so what you want to make sure we have out there is a, a level of objectivity within the academic community. So enough respect for the homeschooling community. So the data that's collected is uh, reflecting what's actually happening in the world and not just the ideological reflections of a few academics. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably what's driven a lot of the conversation up to this point has been uh, individuals' preconceptions about homeschooling and whether they kind of feel philosophically whether it's good or not. And, and no question, the empirical data I, we have what we have, but it, it remains sort of weak. And so we've got to do a little bit of a better job in this. Well, thank you, Daniel, for um, sharing your thoughts with me on the conference that we uh, co-hosted. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Enjoy the conversation. I've been speaking with Daniel Hammond, an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma and co-host of the conference on homeschooling in the post-pandemic era held here at Harvard University's program on education policy and governance. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.